Fredology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Welcome to this week's episode of the Fraudology Podcast. I really enjoy having conversations with fellow fraud fighters, and sometimes I'm lucky enough to record them and share them with you for the podcast. This week is no exception. Kelly Paxton is a certified fraud examiner. She's the principal consultant at K Paxton LLC and the host of the Great Women in Fraud podcast. And over the last several years, she's really become the expert and really known for pink color fraud. This is a term that I honestly had to Google when Kelly first reached out to me, I don't know, like four or five years ago about a chargeback issue that a family member of hers had, and she had a question about it. And we've connected on LinkedIn prior to that, but we've stayed in touch ever since and really enjoy supporting each other. And although this podcast is primarily about e-commerce fraud, because that's really what I know best, I really think it's important to understand other types of fraud fighting, and we can learn a lot from each other. Also, I've noticed that whether someone's in auditing embezzlement fraud or identifying suspicious patterns or, you know, payment service provider fraud, financial institution or banking fraud or e-commerce fraud or anything else that I forgot to list there. The personality traits and passion of a fraud fighter are pretty similar. And I do think that there's a lot that can be learned from each other, this cross-pollination of information, because we all share a passion for justice and an inherent curiosity and love to problem solve. And I think that you will definitely hear that on this episode with Kelly. We got to talk a little bit more about what pink collar fraud is. And I honestly assumed that it was primarily referring to gender, but that's not actually the case. So you'll get to learn that. You'll get to hear about Kelly's time in the Border Patrol. Prior to 9-11, it was much different and their scope was much different. So I found that really interesting. And also some of the investigations that she's worked on over the years on bookkeeper and accountant fraud. So I really am looking forward to you listening to this episode. I look forward to hearing what you think. And with that, I'll let you listen in and I'll talk to you next week. Kelly, thanks so much for joining me on my podcast, Fraudology. I am just returning the favor because you were on my podcast. Well, I was going to say the same thing, actually. Like, I'm grateful that you came on my podcast. I really enjoyed going on yours, so it certainly didn't feel like a favor at all. I think that, like, this will be different because it's been a while. We've Mm -hmm. had more, like, COVID time and stuff like that. 
But also, I'm fascinated by your world because your world, I think, is a lot more complex than my world. <laughs> I don't know about that, but uh, I think your world is a lot more whack a mole. Yeah. And just for context and for the difference in e commerce fraud prevention, it is whack a mole. We don't have time to find out much about who's doing it. We're not guessing, but thankfully for technology, we have insights into risky behavior, but we're essentially guessing intent and we're trying to stop them from committing a crime. Whereas in your world, the certified fraud examiner world is how I think of it, or audits, you're investigating usually one main person or situation to determine who's doing it. And you have a lot more time to get into it. And you're really putting all the pieces together for a story. Is that a fair analysis? I should probably ask you what it's like to fight fraud in your world. (laughs) No, exactly. So all the cases I've done as a certified fraud examiner that taken from the initial investigation all the way through, it's always, I call it, they fly solo. It's one person. Whereas Mm -hmm. I consider your world to be much more, there could be groups and there could be organizations. Mm -hmm. Whereas I have these solo people. And the thing about pink collar crime is fraud hashtag queen. It's position, not gender, but I'm dealing primarily with women because it's the one crime women really excel about, which, okay. So I have a question for you right off the bat. Okay. I don't know if you've ever looked at gender Mm -hmm. in e-commerce fraud, Yeah. but okay. So I want to hear your experience with gender and e-commerce fraud. I don't have any specific statistics However, I would say for hostile credit card fraud, payment fraud, account takeover, et cetera, it's probably 90% male. I would say for friendly fraud, for refund fraud, like crimes of opportunity and abuse, policy abuse and things like that, it's probably a little more female than carding, but still, I think it's predominantly male across the board. I don't usually think about it very often. But I think for you, because you really are known as the pink collar fraud queen, that a lot of people assume that pink is for females. So actually, before reading your book, I didn't totally understand the difference between white collar and pink collar fraud. And I've known you for years. That's a great place to start. Why is it called pink collar fraud? And let's go from there. It's interesting. So just as a little bit of background, I was a special agent in U.S. Customs, your hometown of Seattle, Washington. Mm -hmm. And I arrested your regular bad guys. And I'm going to say money launderers, drug dealers, pedophiles. And then eventually, fast forward many years, I'm working in a local sheriff's office. I have my certified fraud examiner designation. And I'm doing Main Street embezzlement, garden variety embezzlement. And all my suspects, with the exception of one, are women. So I Googled the term women embezzlers. And I come across pink collar crime, which was popularized in 1989 by criminologist Dr. Kathleen Daly. And it's low to medium level employees, comma, primarily women, comma, who steal from the workplace. Initially, I focused just on women, but it's just because 90% of all bookkeeping positions, according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics, are women. And I love your podcast and there's so much personality in it with you and with the guests. I'm going to be honest and who dislikes me? Women. Because (laughs) I think speaking on women and guys, dudes love it. They're like, you finally are highlighting that women can do some bad things too. But (laughs) the women that push back against me, they should be pushing back against the fact that 
women are in low to medium level positions. That was actually what I was going to say. Is it because of the gender or is it because there are just more women in that position? I would say, so something that really stuck out to me in your book is white collar crime is more those higher level positions, right? Like more CFO than bookkeeper. And they have more resources. And so a lot of times it's higher dollar, but it's also more elaborate, sophisticated and more intentional as well. Probably premeditated broad strokes here, but that's the vast majority, right? And so obviously that's going to skew more male because there are more men in those positions. And so same with pink color fraud. There's more women in that. It's not because more women commit fraud. It's because there's just more women in those positions that are committing that type of fraud. Exactly. And there's a famous criminologist, he's passed, Gil Geis. And he wrote in one of his books, he had the best saying, and I'll probably butcher it, but he's white color, pink color. This is in 2012, I believe he wrote Mm. this, 2012 or 2014. And he's like, white color, pink color. You know what? No one wears collars to work anymore. (laughs) So who cares? And for COVID, we're lucky to wear shirts to work. So pink color is like a subset of white. But I thought that was funny because he did it in 2012 or 14 and he's no one's wearing collars and he's long past and we truly aren't wearing collars. Okay. I see, you know, the audience doesn't see us, but Korea's <laughs> wearing a sweatshirt. I'm wearing a hoodie. <laughs> yeah. And I'm wearing like a tie dye shirt. So right. there's no collar. <laughs> Yeah. My daughter actually asked me about that too. She was like, what's a white collar? And I was like, oh my gosh, like that's such a generational thing. Apparently I was saying something about white collar crime. And she was like, what's a white collar? And she actually thought it was more like racial. And I was like, oh no, I understand why you'd think that, but no, it's actually more the type of job someone has. So Let's dive into that a little bit more as far as I love the fact that you have law enforcement background as a female, talk about male-dominated industry, and then going into more the fraud aspect and really enjoying putting the pieces together. What's been a couple of like your career highlights when you're looking back on your career and that you're proud of or are like, wow, that's awesome. One of my favorite happened in Seattle while I was a U.S. Customs Special Agent and it was a white collar fraud and it was an advanced fee scheme. So they call them prime make notes, advanced fee schemes. And shockingly, the woman, it was a woman who was part of it and she was a lawyer. So my high point was getting a female lawyer disbarred. <laughs> and what was really interesting was they say that men steal for the three W's, wine, women, and wagers. And they say women steal for the three C's, cars, clothing, and casinos. This woman was the primary breadwinner. Her husband had like a factory warehouse job. She was a lawyer and she was a desperate lawyer. So she was the primary breadwinner. And when it all broke loose, her husband was so angry at me. But the one thing he said was when we upgraded from the Camry to the Avalon, and it was so funny because the Camry is a much better car because we were seizing the Avalon. We seized the house, we seized the Avalon. And actually the highlight was we were able to stop $2.4 million from being stolen. Wow. Like we could actually stop it. And that was because we had a great contact at the financial institution. So that was a highlight getting a female. And pink collar crime wasn't even in my like 96. And the term really only popularized in 1989. And I kind of think pink collar crime had died a slow death until I resurrected it with getting the <laughs> domain name in 2009 or 10. So 
that was like a highlight of my sort of career. I'm curious about Border Patrol doing criminal investigations. What's their jurisdiction? Back then, so long ago, (laughs) um, U.S. Customs had an office of investigation. So U.S. Customs was separate. And we had an office of investigations. It wasn't part of DHS at the time, Department of Homeland Security. It wasn't part of DHS. Right, right, because it was pre We were part of Treasury. And so anything that crossed a border, anything, and the money that crossed the border that left Seattle and was going to Europe. So that's where we got it. And customs got to so many people are like, oh, so you're ex-FBI. And I'm like, oh, please, no, come on. Like customs, we got to investigate (laughs) such cool stuff. I know it's changed and I don't know if I would have lasted through all the changes, but that's how I became a customs special agent. And this is so funny because I've seen this recently so much. We had a client. And this is all public record. I was at a brokerage firm, stocks, buying stocks and bonds. And the client came in with a big check and he just churned and burned that account. And he was hinky. And I knew he was hinky. One day we get a call from U.S. Customs, the special agent. And she's, do you know Alan? And I was 25, 27 and I giggled. (laughs) And I was like, oh, is that what we're calling him today? Because he'd show up and he's like, I'm Winston. So he eventually got arrested, but this was his thing was he did a letter of credit fraud, where is, okay, think about the early nineties cell phones. They were brick phones. They were called brick phones. Yep. He said he was going to import a bunch of phones from China. The way the letter of credit fraud worked, the boat leaves China and the money moves. And sure enough, when they arrived and the person who bought them opened the brick phone, there were truly bricks inside of them. No cell phones, <laughs> but bricks. <laughs> and that's actually, I've been seeing wow. some stories in the news about the same thing. And I don't think it's Alan. I, I don't know if he's ever left the world of crime. He was just a grifter. Mm. But yeah, that's how I got started. Is that you helped the Border Patrol with that case and then realized it just well, lit something up in you? Border Patrol really had nothing to do with it. I oh. worked some cases with Border Patrol. Okay. Border Patrol was people. And so we were like money and goods. And I have a financial background. So that's how I got hired was my financial background. I don't have a degree in criminology. I majored in international relations and with a minor in econ. I think I had a minor in econ. It's been so long. I took a lot of econ. So. Yeah, they wanted that financial. So I did the undercover books for the district and it was really fun. I can't believe I got paid to do what I got to do. I got to chase people. I didn't get speeding tickets. (laughs) And Christmas for me was getting someone's bank account. I mean, (laughs) because you dive into the data and be able to see that feels so intrusive to me, but also I completely understand because I also enjoy diving into data in different ways because it tells stories and you get to put the pieces together and tell that story. I've enjoyed watching your journey and being your own boss. And you and I share a lot of what motivates us in common, but also our love for sharing information on LinkedIn as well, which is how our paths have crossed many times. But that I think is the first time and really how we know each other. And I really appreciate the fact that you love to share information and speak at events. What are you going over when you're speaking at events? Are you going through kind of the ABCs of pink collar crime and embezzlement or is it different every time? 
So like my signature talk is Catch Me If You Can, Today's Pink Collar Criminal. And it's about basically my book was how to detect, prevent, and investigate pink collar crime. And there are nuances, but it's garden variety embezzlement. However, I also teach an ethics course called Honestly Dishonest, a fraud examiner's perspective. And we don't have our favorite children. We don't have our favorite, supposedly. Granted, tomorrow's my son's birthday, so whatever. Um, <laughs> He'll be the favorite. Yeah, I love ethics because what I saw when I first went from arresting bad guys to just being part of investigation and they were like Sally from the dentist's office or Megan from the water district or Bob from homeowners association was these were good people making bad choices. Mm. And the pink collar crime presentation is more technical. The ethics, the honestly dishonest presentation I want you to think, and I want the attendees to think and go, what would I do in those shoes? And one of my biggest things is empathy. And I just did a webinar the other day and it was on pink collar crime. And one guy in the chat says, I would like some suggestions for interrogation courses. And I stopped what I was doing completely. Mm -hmm. I was like, wait a minute. I don't interrogate. I interview. And I even have talked with an FBI agent or no, he was actually on a show that I listened to, but I've been on the show. And he says, I have a conversation. Interrogate kind of infers they're guilty before innocent. Yeah. Hmm. And so the honestly dishonest part, you need to put yourself in their shoes. And it's the, you get a lot more with honey than vinegar, Mm -hmm. but we do. And who's to say that we're not going to have something in our life that makes us make a bad choice and we need empathy. So I want investigators out there to have empathy. A good person making a bad choice, does it make them bad? And a bad person making a good choice, does it make them good? We don't always stay in our own lanes. And I want other investigators to understand you are going to get a lot more from the suspect Mm -hmm. if you can give them the grace, the allowance for them to come clean because they want to come clean. Is it safe to say that the majority of people who are in those bookkeeping and administrative assistant and those types of jobs for, I know it's an array of different companies and government as well as associations and sport clubs and all those things. When you're seeing those or when you're investigating, are the majority of them out of desperation? Hashtag need not greed, but then it goes to a lot of times hashtag greed, not need. So that first Mm -hmm. time it may be a real financial pressure, like real, Uh, like the house is going to be foreclosed on. Your kid is sick, but then they don't get caught Mm. because they don't steal one check for $750,000. It might be a couple hundred bucks. I had a woman and she speaks on this and her son was arrested and her second husband always said that the son was like a problem and she needed to hire a lawyer and she had the money in their joint account, but her husband would have seen it. And that's when she stole. So her husband wouldn't see that she had paid for an attorney to get for him out. Son. But then when she did it and it wasn't noticed, I think it, hers was $250,000 later. Wow. So, And I've seen it where it's been an actual true mistake. There's a woman, Diane Catani, she's closed the ACFE Global Conference one year. The first year I really met a pink collar criminal, like Mm. in person. 
the first time she stole the travel agency that she booked a trip home with was the travel agency for her employer. And they mistakenly put it on the employer's credit card. And what happens, Mm. we have the fraud triangle, opportunity, pressure, and rationalization. When she realized it, she goes, they called me a lot during vacation. I really worked a lot during Mm -hmm. vacation. I was answering stuff. And she's, I'll get it next time. I think hers was $450,000 later. But the first time was a mistake. There's Mm -hmm. a guy who, and it's a guy who stole almost $2 million. It's the largest school embezzlement ever. And there's a great movie, Bad Education with Hugh Jackman and Allison Janney. And Hugh Jackman plays the superintendent. And after the movie came out, the real person was on a podcast and he said, it was two Greek salads and two sodas. And Monday came and no one realized it. And he ended up stealing $2 million. From a school. Yeah. Mind you, in this one, it was interesting. The character played, or Allison Janney played the woman and she actually stole more (laughs) because hashtag men steal more. That's a difference between men and women. Generally, men steal more. Wow. Speaking of movies on the topic, like there are a lot more movies and documentaries about your type of fraud than there is in e-commerce, which I think that's a missed opportunity in Hollywood, but that's a whole other conversation. A lot of it is people ask me, like, I need to write a book or write a movie or something like that. I'm like, I don't name company names. If I named company names, it'd be really juicy, but I won't because then all my bridges are burned. That's, you know, kind of something that stops me, but maybe it's also just an excuse. I don't know. But there's one movie I want to say, is it all the Queen's horses? Oh yeah. I know the producer, Kelly Richmond Pope. I do too, as well. Actually, she had Brett Johnson come up to her school a few times at DePaul University in Chicago. And she and I have talked as well. And also my aunt who is in competitive horse shows, knew that woman like she saw her all the time in fact one time my aunt won first over her and it was like they were always kind of in competition which is weird because they were across the country from each other but at the world competitions and all of that stuff but yeah that's a fascinating documentary as well i recommend that all the time it was so well done mm-hmm. and it hit all my boxes so when rita crundwell was caught she was actually on vacation which is unusual most people don't take vacation but she was so trusted. And funny thing is she would say, oh, don't worry about it. You don't have to pay me while I'm gone. Yeah, Cause well, she was yeah. right. And she and, worked for a small town. She basically robbed them blind. Oh my God. Yeah. She stole $53.7 million. What's so funny, fun fraud fact. It was Ronald Reagan's hometown. Trust, but verify. Oh my God. They didn't <laughs> trust, but verify. Wow. And it was a tip. It was a whistleblower that found the fraud. Yeah. And when Rita was finally confronted by the FBI, she sang like a canary because they usually confess. And she said, they asked her, how much did you steal? And she said, 10 million. She stole 53.7. So I have a two to six factor. Hmm. So if you get someone who admits what they stole, yeah, that's not the number. (laughs) That is one of the other big differentiators between my fraud and your fraud is that almost always we don't talk to the people who are committing fraud. We don't get a confession. It really is whack-a-mole. We're just trying to help the company save money. It's not about catching someone because quite honestly, justice is fleeting on that. But for a lot of reasons, and the law hasn't caught up with technology and there aren't enough resources and there's jurisdiction issues and all the other things. But there definitely are some very large companies who have invested in investigations teams who have determined that it is 
a good business policy to prosecute and do that. And I really admire it and think it's great. It can be hard and uncharted territory for a while, but then they get a system and I've had some really big wins. But aside from having a few phone calls with fraudsters and really enjoying messing with them when they're trying to convince me, or usually it was someone on my staff and then they'd ask to speak to their boss. I would know that they weren't who they said they were and they would know that they weren't who they said they were, but they wouldn't know that I knew that they, all those things. But it was over the phone. I just think it would be so different to be face to face with someone. But I do think that the intent matters. And so I think that there is such a difference in intent for cyber criminals, for the career cyber criminals. That is their intention is to wreak havoc and to steal. It feels like with embezzlement and this type of fraud that there's never, I shouldn't say never, but often there isn't like the intention of I'm going to steal $53 million from my company. It feels like they take an inch and then a little bit and a little, it's like a tipping point situation. Is that the right assumption? And I say this all the time. I don't think I can get out of bed in the morning if I think everyone's out to rip us off. Like it's a terrible feeling. Yeah. And I'm going to say, I always exclude psychopaths and narcissists mm-hmm. and real grifters. Whereas the e-commerce fraud is, I think they see it as a business. It's a business. Whereas in yeah. my world of embezzlement, they don't see it as a business. They see it as a lifeline to keep their point in society, make sure mm-hmm. that they're not homeless or whatever. But then They realize, and I've said this a lot lately, is people think money solves everything. Mm. And sure enough, short term, it does. If you're looking down at losing your car, losing your house, your kid, whatever, money will solve it quickly. Yeah. But long term, it doesn't. Like you have to learn to live within your means or get another job or something Mm. like that. But our brains go to the quick fixes. Whereas your people, I interviewed Alexander Hall on my podcast recently. He had checklists. My embezzlers <laughs> don't have checklists. I'm going to say it right now. My embezzlers don't have checklists. He had checklists. I think he was running it and he had regular office hours. Yeah. My embezzlers don't have regular. I mean, they do. Because they do they're because they're being paid to, right to do their yeah. actual job. But I don't think my people get up in the morning and say, I'm going to steal $775 today. Right. I think they're like, oh, that check doesn't show up or whatever. Mm -hmm. And they take that opportunity. It's a cream of opportunity. Yeah. Which is part of the fraud triangle, but there does have to be the opportunity. And granted, there's this whole term that I just really cringe every time I say it, but friendly fraud when there, there is some more intent there. And it's essentially people who are buying something that then have buyers or more want to get it for free in some way. And it's their payment method on a career criminal a lot of times I actually have less respect for those people than I do the career criminals, which I don't know if that makes sense to anyone else, but it's certainly, I don't know, just I respect the people doing their jobs in some way. And they're also easier to catch and easier to identify, but the more hostile fraud guys are, but there really is a lot of differences. And I think it's fascinating because I think shorthand is just to say, oh, I'm in fraud, but there are so many different types of fraud. But I do think that there's still those personality traits in people who fight fraud that are very similar, whether it's e-commerce or that we have a strong sense of justice, we have a strong curiosity and problem solving and wanting to put pieces together, kind of puzzle mindset and again, justice and fairness and all of that. But it also becomes a passion. It's so much more than a job. 
And that's why it's easy for us to strike up friendships within this industry because we are all motivated in a similar way and share a lot of the same personality traits. <laughs> and my dad used to say I was Snoopy. He didn't give me the <laughs> curious. I prefer to say curious. Right. But the other thing, and I'd love to go back to school. And I actually got dinged at a presentation when I said I'm too old to go back to school. And <laughs> Maybe she's a lot older than she looks. So that was the backhanded compliment. Right. But if I'm offended that she says she's too old to go back to school. And my point was, is my husband is a professor. He has a PhD. He went to 13 years of university. I'm not doing that. It doesn't financially pay for me. I'm fascinated by people's decision-making. And mm. I have this whole side of me, this behavioral econ, behavioral science, because people aren't rational. Yeah. And that's what behavioral econ and behavioral science are about. If we were rational, we'd never steal. We'd fund our 401ks from our first job that we <laughs> ever got. There's so many things, but people aren't rational. So right. I love to get in. And what was the thing that made you cross the line? What is it? There's a great guy out there who, or I say great, I have felon friends. I know you must have felon friends too. I do. Alexander Hall, you named him actually though. He doesn't have a felony on his record. So he's not a felon, but yeah, the first time I picked up Brett Johnson at the airport, I was like, I think this is the first time I've had someone with a felony in my car, not to mention like 39 felonies on their record. But you knew that about him. Yeah. I'm fascinated what causes a person to cross the line. Mm -hmm. And I'm also a big person for the underdog. And this goes to the fraud triangle. You have opportunity, pressure, and rationalization. And I'm going to say there is never an excuse to steal. Never. But if you have a beep asshole boss, it makes it easier to steal. Don't give your employees that rationalization. I've heard so many stories. My boss treated me like a piece of crap. And when my boss wrote off their big trip to, I don't know, the south of France, and I can't even take my kids to Whidbey Island, you know what? I'm taking 200 bucks and going renting an Airbnb and eating peanut butter and jelly while he's having a $10,000, she's having a $10,000 dinner at Nobu. Don't give them that rationalization. Again, Mm. never a reason to steal, but you can't control what goes on in someone's head. I share that too. I majored in sociology in school and have always been fascinated with human behavior. And that's actually why I I love chargeback analytics because I'm able to look and see why people are calling their banks and then figure out, and I've been pretty successful at it for all different types of companies. Like what can we put up in the upfront to reverse engineer that and make people not call into their bank? Whether that's because their card was stolen or because the customer service wasn't right or the verbiage on the website was right or whatever it is. And changing something in the upstream, like at the time of their transaction is going to completely change the outcome two to three months later. And there's just something really satisfying about that. I think that's another commonality between all fraud fighters too, is just that eternal learner. We love to learn. There are obviously some people who at some point in their career say, I know everything and they stop learning. I will never be someone like that. That's my favorite thing is that every project that I work on or every merchant that I help even with a one-off question, like it's unique and it's different. I shouldn't say every, but a lot of them are. And you're constantly like, oh, okay. So you ask just a few questions and you can figure out exactly what's going on in your head. And then you know how to fix it. And even beyond fraud, I just love to learn and get new 
perspectives and new thoughts. But I do think that's a commonality that we all share too. I know you and I like share books and podcasts. Mm -hmm. It's also not just about like fraud. Yeah. It's about other things like how to grow your connections, your network, or, and you have the great F4 female fraud fighters and helping. And also we're learning at the same time. It's a two-way street. I'll get some new person or some young career professional and I'll be following them. And I'm like, wow, I hadn't thought of it like that. And then they'll look at my stuff and they'll go, oh, I didn't know that. So it is such a two-way street. And when it becomes only a one-way street and you think you know it all, oh my God, some young kid's going to just throw you completely to the side. (laughs) It's so true. And we were talking about this before. For recording is just the importance of having a personal brand, even when you're fully employed and have zero interest of ever becoming an entrepreneur. I certainly being risk adverse my entire career didn't plan on being an entrepreneur, but you know, there are a lot of people that won't ever do that, but it still is important. And I know that it's fearful for a lot of people, but why do you tell fraud fighters that they need to start posting on LinkedIn or thinking about their brand and their reputation? I think fraud professionals audit professionals, we uncover dirt. Yeah. And that dirt, you would think it would protect you, but sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes the company no longer wants you to know that dirt. I always liken it to the CIA is you think you have enough dirt to protect yourself, but really who's bigger. And then you also have this line. I have a line. I won't cross it. What if your company wants you to cross the line? And you've got nothing set up. You have no LinkedIn presence. You've always just been fed stuff. And you're like, I'm not crossing that line. But then you are also, I've got a mortgage. I've got kids, whatever it is. It's like a parachute. If you get pushed out of the plane, you at least have a parachute. So I firmly believe in having it. And also we've met via social media and LinkedIn. And I think we bring the bar up. And I want to bring the bar up for everyone. And I want younger people and even mid-career and even if they're transitioning later in life to see that it is possible because of LinkedIn. Honestly, yesterday I did a podcast recording and then I did my first LinkedIn live ever. And not to be cheesy or sentimental or anything, by the end of the day, I was like, this would have never happened even 20 years ago. People in the middle of the country And then another guy in the South, a woman in Denver, and we are all connecting and we are all trying to help people about fraud. It's amazing. But all of them would have never known if I weren't known as like the pink lady. (laughs) So they would have never had that. And for me, it brings opportunity. Yeah. And I would say too, that it's good to have it even just if you do... For so many other reasons than just like a parachute to have your own business. And I know that's not exactly what you were saying, but like also for your next venture, people associate you with credibility when you're sharing information, when you're participating in the conversation. And even if you don't want to post your own stuff, just commenting on other people's things can really call attention to you and make you stand out because nine out of the 10 people on LinkedIn aren't posting anything. They're not engaging. They're lurkers. They're reading. And that's okay. But putting it out there, engaging more 
is going to make people think of you when there's another role coming up or when you do apply for something. Oh yeah, I'm familiar with your name or somebody that I know and trust. Additionally though, even if you are going to stay at your company for the rest of your career, it's a great way to find new talent. I have people all the time reaching out to me like, hey, we're looking for a certain type of person. Like, who do you know? Or who should we be talking to? And if they're not engaging, then it's going to be hard to find that as well as just in general, having that camaraderie. I have to say that a lot of times, no matter what type of fraud you're in, you said it earlier, like we can start to lose faith in humanity. You don't wake up in the morning assuming everyone's bad, but like by the end of the day, it might feel like that because all you're looking at is this crime that somebody committed or these people trying to commit a crime. And that's why I think levity is so important in our career path and in our field. And as well as just having that camaraderie, because there's a shorthand that happens with people who fight fraud. We understand the frustration and it also, there's no one else that understands it in the way that we all do. And that's another thing is, and I joke, I'm a fraud therapist. Oh my gosh. I've used the exact same terminology. <laughs> yeah. It's a common thread for, so I've done prosecution and defense and I have to say, I love the defense work. Like I love it. Like, for lawyers to dive in and help them. Yeah. Um, exonerate someone or yeah first be told not all police work is a hundred percent accurate we know this and so there is nothing worse than a person to be falsely accused that will lose their liberty and it can happen yeah so yeah i love doing both sides of the work i find it fascinating yeah i could totally see that yeah and again that's just another difference because if i were to do another side of work, I'd be a criminal. (laughs) Yeah. I'd be a fraudster. And even though I can think like them, there's this thing called my conscience and integrity that will always get in the way. And I'm glad it does my ethics and all of that. If somebody at the store, like accidentally gives me a dollar back that I more than I should, or if they didn't charge me for something, I'm so conscious about the fact I of all people cannot like ever be considered stealing. So I will go back to the store and be like, Hey, you didn't ring me up for this. It's not just about a reputation thing, but it is, that is something that I sometimes joke. Oops. I left an avocado in the top of my you know shopping cart to go back and pay for that. Cause I am not going to have the headline be the top fraud expert stole an avocado at the grocery store. <laughs> oh my God. And that's the other thing is it can snowball. So this is my sort of thing is if I forget a dog poop bag when mm. I'm on my dog, <laughs> my husband and I have this debate a lot. Yeah, I'll go back. I walk in a park and they have dog poop bags. Mm-hmm. So it's really nice. I will never take two. I will only take one. And I think about it because it's like, oh my God, if I take two, I cross the line. <laughs> Maybe 50 yards down the path. My dog's going to poop again and then I'll have the second one, but maybe it's, ugh. so it's snowballs. So I just have this thing in my gut because I have seen people who are like, I just, yeah, I put a hundred extra miles on my expense report. Wow. It's, it's like my line. And it's funny. I have this whole thing about, ask them about the first time they stole. Hmm. And I will ask an audience, tell me if you ever stole candy as a kid. And tell me what kind of candy bar it is. And people will go, oh my God, yeah, uh huh, lollipop or whatever. Now, I never stole candy as a kid. My mom would buy it for me. I didn't either. Yeah. But I was peer pressured, I say this peer pressured, into taking a stuffed animal from a place like it was on a display. It wasn't for Mm. sale or anything like that. Oh my God. 
for a week. I was physically sick. I took it back to me. (laughs) I took it back to the place the next week. And it was at a lodge that we skied at and I put it back. And for a week, I'm sure I just snapped at people and I still remember it. It was a teddy bear. It was brown, but we remember it. Yeah, it's crazy, but I can't cross the line because I will, me, myself, I will become physically sick. Yeah, but also because you've seen what happens, a snowball effect. But I think also it's just, there is that integrity piece that is just, you have to have when you're a fraud fighter and it makes it really hard to even consider it. And it's just the way it is. I really enjoy your Great Woman in Fraud podcast. I was really fortunate to be one of the first interviews and I really enjoy listening to it. There's a lot of great people that you've had on. What's been some of your favorite things that have come out of that podcast and learnings or people that you've met or what's the highlight? First off, I am so honored that you were on it and I have such amazing guests. Like they're giving me their time. You can't replace time. I didn't have an easier time asking them for money. I think honestly, that's how important people's times are. I agree. I'd say it's Groundhog Day in Great Women in Fraud. Groundhog Day in a really good way. Mm. Lifelong learners, curiosity, how important your network is. Every single guest says that. And these Mm -hmm. people are all at the top of their field. And they're all saying the same things. Like I'm doing this year for the ACFE Global Conference. I'm doing your brand as a CFE. And I'm taking the learnings from all my guests. And they're very consistent about curiosity, lifelong learner, network, sharing information. Is law enforcement, former law enforcement, we don't share our sources. And it took me a long time to get over that because sources made cases. Yeah. I give everything away. I give everything away for free. Practically, <laughs> it's just insane. So you and I have that in common. I would, if I could, I still help a lot of people without ever sending an invoice. And, and I enjoy that and I will always do that. But I've had to really put some boundaries in lately just because it's for myself, not because other people are, but because I know myself. And if I read or answer every single LinkedIn message, for example, like I will never make have a billable hour again. <laughs> and yeah. Yeah. And it's, so you've got to boundaries on yourself, but I'm with you too. For me, I always say that my network and my experience has very little value if I don't share it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I get so many people. I woke up to a LinkedIn message this morning. Hey, can I pick your brain? Okay. People <laughs> like, I hate, see, I'm the opposite. That phrase makes me think of zombies. And as an entrepreneur, we've learned that is speak for, can I have a half an hour of your time or an hour of your time without paying? And like I said, if I won the lottery tomorrow, I would do that all day long. But I did see a t-shirt a few weeks ago that said, if you want to pick my brain, you need to pick your payment method. I found that pretty funny. Oh <laughs> that is awesome. Oh, I want that shirt. I right? saw <laughs> it. Yeah. It's just like, we want to share. Yeah. And- Great women in fraud, actually, like I came back from a conference a couple of years ago and I'm like, I said to my virtual assistant, I want a podcast. (laughs) And of course she's so different from me. She like gave me a hundred steps to do. If you hit a hundred, then you might make a buck and she's, you need to pay me. But it was really good that she slowed me down because then last summer during COVID, I went from just having a podcast on fraud to a podcast about great women in fraud and dudes listen. I got yeah. all sorts of dudes who are listening because it's all good information. Yeah. But I was getting so many women reaching out to me and saying, I want to do what you do. Mm. And I would talk to them all day long 
but it's better in a podcast and it's better with guests that are willing to share their time. Yeah, I'm with you. That's a big reason why I have the podcast as well is it's a way for me to share information with people at scale and introduce them to great people in fraud and obviously present company included, but there's never going to be enough information out there about these industries because things are always changing and you know morphing and everybody's at a different level and just all the things. So why not put more stuff out in the world? And again, we're eternal learners. So we do enjoy podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I listened to three podcasts on my run this morning. So yeah. The other thing is I don't, and I know you don't, we don't always listen to our own industry. You and I are both fans of pivot, huge fans of pivot. I will say it, my world collides in pivot more often than I can tell you though, because they do talk about so much tech and often like actually the most recent, I don't know, it was yesterday's episode, I think. So like the March 26th, I think they were talking about a few companies that are really good in subscription billing. And they're like, yes, the Rundles thing is, I was like, every single company they named are people that I've known people on their payments team for the last 10 years. And those companies have prioritized really getting subscription billing and payments. And I'm thinking of Josh and Sam and, and Lindsay and all these people that I'm like, obviously I'm not saying last names, but yeah, those companies are making a ton of money because they have people optimizing the payment process and also really doing a good job at data and reducing their fraud and their chargebacks. And other times they're complaining about a company with bot issues. And I know exactly who was in charge and what vendor they used and all this stuff. And so it does still fall underneath my purview a little bit work-wise, but I do learn a lot as well and really enjoy, yeah, enjoy Pivot. I enjoy Sway, but also by Kara Swisher. What are some other ones that you really like to listen to? So I'm a member of the National Speakers Association, and that has actually been so helpful in, quote, growing my brand, but huh. building my business. It's the business of speaking. So it's not Toastmasters, but it's right. the business of speaking. Yeah. And I have met so many people through that. And hmm. so now one of the podcasts I'm listening to is Influential Brand with Rory Vaden. And I saw him win his award two summers ago, and he's got great stuff. So I've listened to that. I listened to John Lee, JLD, John Lee Dumas. I have so many. Everyone could learn whatever they wanted to learn online for free. It may take Except you for many hours fraud, I would say, only because there's a lot we've had to out. But well, yeah. yeah, and a few other things. But yeah, absolutely. But it would take you tens of hours. Whereas I have learned that let's condense it down into smaller bite-sized things. Mm -hmm. and. By buying a course from these people, they'll break it down. So you don't have to listen to 40 hours of someone's podcast. You can just buy their course or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. It's a great way to be exposed to other people. I've really found it to also be great during COVID, right? Because we're all in our homes and not connected as much. So, you know, it's nice to almost meet people in quotation marks while listening. I also really enjoy the OSINT podcast, the privacy. I can't remember what oh, he, it is, but I've seen him in person. I'm yeah. a stalker. Well, yeah. <laughs> But that one is an example of it's fraud, but it's not e-commerce fraud. But I think there's a lot that people, especially with manual reviews and post-transaction investigations, can really learn from open source investigations. So on that note, we've spoken for another hour. Look at that, Kelly. <laughs> <laughs> 
We spent two hours on Zoom today and I am grateful for it. Speaking of your time, I really appreciate you sharing yours with myself and the listeners of the Fraudology Podcast and also just really appreciate your passion. I really enjoyed your book and I meant to talk more about it on this episode, but I think there's a lot of parallels in looking for embezzlement as there is in you're looking for those clues and hints in e-commerce fraud as well. And it was a pretty light, easy read, but good information. And the first chapter had me laughing out loud. My husband's, what are you doing? And I'm like, reading a book about fraud. And the stories are great and really informative. And I'm really proud of you that you did this. It's quite an accomplishment that I am terrified to do. Yeah, I think it's pretty awesome. You'll forever be an author. And that's a pretty cool accolade. Thank you so much, Kelly, for joining me. And I will be sure to put your LinkedIn profile link in the show notes, as well as a link to where your book can be found and the Great Women in Fraud podcast and all the awesome things you're doing. And I just really appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you, Carice. It is truly hashtag honored to be with you. (laughs) Thank you so much. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.